Tanse, that's hello in Cree. Welcome to Catching Frogs. I'm Wendy Stewart. Thanks for joining me today. I'm grateful to the Canada Council for the Arts for their support of this project on my journey to reconnect with my Cree and Métis roots and to revisit the history of Canada through the lens of Indigenous women and their significant contribution. But none of this would be possible had it not been for the tireless commitment of Donna Sutherland, my second cousin, and the 10 years of her dedicated research. We begin. Last we were together, I was in Winnipeg visiting the Hudson's Bay Company archives and the St. John's Cathedral Cemetery and Seven Oaks Museum. And now I'm headed to Churchill, courtesy of Via Rail. I'm in the train station in Winnipeg. I haven't been on a train since I was 10. My first train trip was 57 years ago from this very station. It seemed bigger then. I was going to Vancouver with my family. My first real trip, an adventure into the bigger world. I don't remember many of the details from that trip. I know we boarded the train at night. My sister and I were wearing our pajamas, as were most of the children boarding the train that night. My brother was closer to being a grown-up than we were, so he wore his street clothes, my mother called them. A strange name, clothes given the task of walking in the street. Play clothes had a much better time. The train was waiting on the track. It seemed to be smoldering as if impatient to get going. Or maybe that was me, my imagination getting the better of me. My sister and I shared a sleeping berth. I think we may have squabbled over who had more space than the other, but eventually we fit together, holding each other as the train hiccuped its way out of the station and down the track. The engine was the first to take charge and decided to leave the station, and then each car followed suit, jumping into action, one at a time, until the entire length of the train moved in unison down the tracks, like a finely choreographed dance. My sister and I whispered and giggled, our imaginations running free, train robbers galloping along next to the train, ready to abandon their steeds, to jump aboard and seize the train payroll, which was undoubtedly stored in one of the cars. The clickety-clack of the train and the gentle swaying back and forth rocked us into reluctant sleep. I wonder if my sister remembers that we wore matching pajamas. Hers were pink, mine yellow, set aside for this once-in-a-lifetime adventure. So here I am again. I'm not wearing yellow pajamas. I'm not heading to Vancouver. I'm heading to Churchill. Fort Prince of Wales. I am giddy with excitement and anticipation. I'm standing next to the tracks. The train isn't very long. No one seems to know where to go. I'm standing back and waiting. The rules of COVID seep into every activity. Eventually, someone waves me down to the second car from the rear, looks at my ticket and tells me to climb the steps and turn left when I get in. I'm in cabin five. It's the first on my left. An older gentleman is across from me in cabin six. We exchange smiles. I plop down on the seat in this mini-sized cabin, not much bigger than the blanket tents I built under the dining room table as a child. But it is everything I need, a sink, a toilet, a seat, a bed that rolls out, and best of all, a window. 
Eventually, the train abandons procrastination and jerks its way out of the station. We start rolling down the track. I'm a child again, excited about this adventure, forgetting my age and my aches and pains, but pressing my face against the window's glass and taking it all in. I wave to the automobiles, waiting patiently at each crossing, and every single person waves back. It's a reflex. I love that. Who can help but wave back to a train when it has waved at you and vice versa? A train moving through my childhood was always met with my arm raised, my automatic response to the train's presence. Remember the joy when the engineer waved back or the man in the caboose when there were such things? Who knew what you needed in that moment to be acknowledged? I am here, my wave says, and I see you is the response. It was a glorious validation. I am someone. The first sight as we inched our way through Winnipeg was the Canadian Museum for Human Rights. It's an example of creative architecture built on Treaty 1 territory. The museum's vision statement is, quote, to strive to build understanding, promote respect, and encourage reflection. This museum was the brainchild and dream of the late philanthropist Israel Asper. It was erected at the Forks, where the Red and Assiniboine Rivers meet. The plan was announced in 2003, and Mr. Asper passed away six months later, never to see his his dream reach fruition. The grand opening was in 2014. I thought it an interesting juxtaposition to gaze upon the Museum of Human Rights, considering I was on my way to Churchill to bear witness to the ground my ancestors walked upon. I was lost in my thoughts about all the many levels of human rights and how my grandmother's existence and contributions were so easily pushed aside and forgotten. The train rolls along, the prairie repetitive, the golds and yellows, wheat and canola stretching for miles and miles. I can't help wondering how it is we thought monocultures would not be a threat to the health of the environment. Bigger is better, we tell ourselves, bigger and bigger, pushing aside everything in its way. COVID is still very much with us, so I'm keeping to myself in my weed train fort. I sometimes struggle with a sense of claustrophobia, but oddly, when I close the door on my mini cabin, I feel safe and cozy. I have a journal on my lap, poised to record my thoughts and a map, but mostly I am lost in the rhythm of the train and the landscape out my window. The train slows and speeds up as if it can't decide on a steady pace, but I suspect it has more to do with logistics. Dawn, my neighbor across the aisle, and I are headed to the dining car for supper. Via Rail said there would be no food service on the train due to COVID, but it seems they changed their mind. Those within the tour group that have joined us have their meals included, but the rest of us must pay. Don and I sit down and he tells me of his life, his dedication to education and higher knowledge, an astrophysicist educated at Princeton. His wisdom is gently shared, and I find myself leaning in to hear his stories. Somewhere else in the dining car, another voice can be heard, a male voice, one intent on informing those around him. His speech is relentless, and I wonder who has the burden of constant listening. But I don't turn around to offer a sympathetic gaze. 
I know all too well the type of character that has appointed himself in charge of educating the masses as though his knowledge is complete and vast, delivered without hesitation and without uncertainty, an unchecked need to be heard. He can't help himself. Such a contrast to my dinner partner who at 89 years of age has seen and experienced so much more in terms of knowledge. The meal is a Salisbury steak with mashed potatoes and carrots. I am never critical of food prepared by others. It is a welcome relief from not having prepared it myself. I am grateful I focus on the stories that Don is sharing with me. His reason for traveling to Churchill to revisit his time spent there as a young scientist, a rocket scientist in its true form. I try to block out the other voice, but it is loud and intrusive. I tuck into my bed with Donna Sutherland's book, Nahaway, on my chest. It took me a minute to figure out the bed and how to latch it to keep it from returning to its resting place with me on board as if I might slide back into the container with it and never be heard from again, but I figure it out. The sun is setting and I am on the best side of the train to witness the sky on fire. With the oranges and reds and pinks and yellows, I try to capture it on camera, but it's a foolish notion to think that is possible. In the morning of July 4th, I wake and see a large lake outside my window. I pull out my map. It's either Clearwater Lake or Cormorant Lake. I'm not sure which, but it is a big body of water. I wasn't expecting to see a lake of that size on this journey. The train is puttering along now, taking its time. We pull over on a side rail and a freight train moves past. I wave at the engineer. He waves back with a big friendly smile on his face. I smile from every cell of my being. Don and I go for breakfast together. Unfortunately, the talker sits with us. I try not to grimace. And before we can even exchange morning pleasantries, he begins between each mouthful to tell us about one of the earliest cartographers. I look up from my plate every few seconds. Don tries to encourage the talker with a question, perhaps to slow him down or reroute his monologue, but this man's script is solidly prepared and he won't be taken off track. I eat quickly and excuse myself, regrettably leaving Don to fend for himself. I'm restless, having a hard time keeping my head where it needs to be so that I can review my research notes and create a plan for what I need and want to see in Churchill. I occupy myself looking out the window, trying to imagine the Omishkego moving across the landscape. Thompson is in the distance. Slightly west of the Veal Rail Line is Wintering Lake, on which once had been built Chatham House in, an, in use by the Hudson's Bay Company for three years, ending in 1794. William Hemmings Cook was the master of Chatham House, the first post of several built to help the Hudson's Bay Company compete with the Northwest Company. Nahue married William Sinclair circa 1990 to 1992. They had been living at York Factory after their marriage by Indigenous ceremony. William could speak Cree, both from his friendship with Cree hunters who taught him the geography of the Hudson Bay lowlands and what he learned from Nahue. He was well thought of in terms of his character and I quote, trustworthiness and humanity, as evidenced by letters written of him. 
Chief Factor Joseph Colin appointed William as an inland trader in 1794. The reason I make mention of these two posts is, as I stared out the window from the train at the landscape as we made our way toward Thompson, I got lost in the details of what I had read. I imagined seeing William Sinclair and Nahaway working diligently to create a home for their family in the wilderness. Nahaway had one child, Phoebe, and was pregnant with her second during the building of Wegg's house, and here I am now traveling over the same land they would have traversed, though I have benefit of train. I am humbled and nostalgic and wanting to know more. I sit with my map on my lap, on which I have drawn out the route Via Rail takes from Winnipeg to Churchill, crossing briefly over into Saskatchewan, east of Yorkton, and then crossing back into Manitoba, just below the Paw. Thompson is in the distance. I feel quiet, as if I'd like the train to stop and let me absorb the details of the landscape, to hear life in the forest and in the sky, to feel the sun on my face the way Nahoy might have. I find myself longing, but I really don't know what for. I recently read the words of Maria Popova in her blog, The Marginalian. She wrote about longing, and her words struck me. She said, quote, Nothing kidnaps our capacity for presence more cruelly than longing. And yet, longing is also the most powerful creative force we know. Out of our longing for meaning came all of art. Out of our longing for truth, all of science. Out of our longing for love, the very fact of life. End quote. Her words are such a thoughtful and positive way of looking at longing. We have arrived in Thompson. We dropped a rail car off and it required a back-and-forth dance on a side rail to complete the task. Some passengers got off and went for a brief explore. I went to the dome car to look like I belonged with the others but couldn't pull it off, so retreated to my cubbyhole. Before too long we departed Thompson. I reread my notes about Three Point Lake and Setting Lake, about the building of a home so soon after building the first. I suppose Nahaway was used to living in the moment. Her mother's mother would have lived a more indigenous life if one can categorize such things. Her mother had felt the influence of the contact of Europeans, but after the departure of Nahaway's father back to England, she married a Cree chief. And she and Nahaway would have spent less time at Fort Prince of Wales than previously. It was close to sunset when we passed in the vicinity of Split Lake. I had my map on my lap and tried to estimate where I was, or rather where the train was. Split Lake is of interest to me and its surrounding geography because William mentions it on his travels from Three Point Lake House and Wegg's House on his way to York Fort. There was a, quote, carrying site near Split Lake. In other words, a portage. On June 1st, 1796, at 5 a.m., they embarked for York Fort with two large canoes and two canoes of Indians with 1,650 made beaver. On June 9th, 1796, they put up at the Narrows of Split Lake. William later writes that on June 15th, they got underway at 2 a.m., canoed over the last two carrying places in the Nelson River. 
the ice on the carrying places is very dangerous, being 30 to 40 feet high all along the tracking ground, he wrote. I'm reading my other notes from William's Wake House Journal. It is after dark the evening of July 4th. I drew the blind on my cabin window and pulled my bed out and tucked myself in with my book. I heard a pop-pop popping sound, and the train had slowed to an almost stop. Out the window and ahead I saw fireworks, a substantial display. The train came to a complete stop. The fireworks went on for quite some time. Why July 4th, I asked myself. There must be some American residents in what I could only assume was Gillum. I decided, but later was told that July 1st fireworks were delayed due to bad weather. It was a grand display and I enjoyed it immensely. When it was over, the train proceeded. I soon fell asleep. The train was due to arrive in Churchill at 9 a.m. the morning of July 5th. We were going to be late. My friend across the aisle could only spend one night in Churchill due to family commitments, and he had a tour booked for 10 o'clock. We weren't going to make it. He was obviously disappointed. I stared out the window at the landscape and tried not to fret about Don missing his tour to the fort. At daybreak, the trees were noticeably absent, sparse, and all I could see were black spruce. As we got closer to Churchill, the trees were even thinner and then non-existent. Was this tundra, I wondered, or had they all been harvested? I was inclined to think we were now in tundra country. Churchill's latitude is 58.7679 degrees north. I lived for a time in Pickle Lake, Ontario, whose latitude was 51.4678 degrees north. I guess it still is. The scene out the train's window as we crawled into Churchill seemed quite similar despite Pickle Lake being below the tree line. It was the unmistakable sense that comes from a northern town, one who is obligated to embrace isolation to some degree. What is the tree line and what defines it? It is not a fixed geological phenomenon. The tree line is defined as the corridor between what we call the barrens and the continuous woodland extending into the northern regions. At one time, a glacier covered the entirety of what is now Manitoba. Then the continental ice sheet began to thaw. As a result, the area could eventually sustain life, plants, animals, people. About 6,000 years ago, the tree line tracked through Dubon. It's spelled D-U-B-A-W-N-T. I'm not sure how to pronounce that. Lake in Nunavut. It is tundra today, but back then it was covered by spruce due to the relatively warm temperatures of that time. This warming period ended about 3,500 years ago, and temperatures in that area declined. This drier climate led to forest fires. After the destruction, trees could not regenerate in this colder climate, and thus the tree line shifted south, about 50 kilometers further south than it is now. There is some supposition or wonder regarding the effects of climate change and if the tree line will continue to migrate north. We know that the Hudson Bay lowlands are rebounding from the weight of glaciers at one time, and that rebound, as I mentioned earlier, is constant, 1.3 meters every 100 years. Churchill has been above the tree line for some 2,900 years. We all scrambled off the train. 
My traveling friend hurried off to hopefully be able to salvage some sort of tour to revisit places he was so keen to see. I was picked up by my host of Sarah's Dream House, a bed and breakfast in the southeast corner of town. It was perfect. Next time, we'll see what I find in Churchill. Hi, hi, which means thank you in Cree. Hi, hi for listening. Bye for now.